particularly like about the degrowth movement, where unlike the rest of the environmentalist movement, the degrowth movement is least honest enough to say to people there is no such thing as a free lunch where the environment and social justice are concerned. I, I really like that and I actually think politically it's advisable. I think the environment movement is making a huge mistake thinking people are mug enough to believe that, that, you know, that we, can, we can live just like we do now and better you know, with renewable energy. What a load of rubbish. And people don't believe it. I mean, I've interviewed lots of ordinary people and I can tell you they just do not believe it. That's Melbourne-based author, sociologist and podcaster Terry Lay speaking at the launch of the Degrowth Network Australia event on February 26 in Northcote, Melbourne. Yes, this is the latest episode of Climate Conversations and I'm your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton in Northern Victoria, Australia on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Welcome. It's great to have you on board. Terry was not on his own, as also, speaking at the uh, Sunday, February 26th, launch of the uh, Degrowth Network Australia, the DNA, I love that, was Colin Long, who is he's from the trades, Victorian Trades Hall Council, but he wasn't actually speaking on their behalf. And also there was Anitra Nelson, who has long been involved with the degrowth movement and has championed it all around the world, in fact is known all around the world. Let's have a listen now to what Terry had to say. Well, my, my name's Terry Lay. Um, I've done quite a bit of research on food and sustainability over many years. Uh, I'm a sociologist by trade. Um, I've been interested in permaculture since like the first permaculture book in 1978. Um, in about 2003, in the master's program that I was involved with at Newcastle Uni, we had a lot of African students coming who are part of a land care initiative by the Australian government, and there were mainly extension workers working in the rural villages in Africa. So that led me to, to, to try and work out what was going wrong with projects in rural Africa and why, why there was still so much hunger and starvation, malnutrition, like up to 25% of people. And, and what it also introduced me to was some really successful projects. And, and you know, they've taught me in a, in a way what, what, what is this, a self-sufficient localised agriculture, uh, you know, with, with low use of, of industrial commodities actually look like uh, on the ground and how, and how you can bring it about. Um, recently I've written The Politics of Permaculture, which is a, about permaculture as a social movement. And also for a book edited by Nietzsche, I've written a chapter on a, a degrowth food scenario for Melbourne sustainable food for Melbourne. So anyway, I'm not going to talk about that. What I decided to do instead was to, to look at a recent uh, issue, a kerfuffle I think I'm going to call it, you'd hardly call it a crisis, uh, which has happened in the UK over vegetables and fruit. And my friend Lena, who lives, lives with us, um, said, said to me that this was an illustration of what was wrong with Brexit and that, that basically the problem was that, that British... Um, British people would not work on farms for the low wages that used to be paid to the Polish immigrants who were coming through the EU into Britain. And so there was a huge crisis in farm production. Um, as you'll see, the, I then read an article in The Age, and, and as you'll see, I, I, there are a number, of other, a number of factors of which that's probably one, definitely one of them, but there's, there's more. And this, um, I'm going to use this as a way of sort of sparking off on some of the 
kind of problems with food and degrowth and sustainability at the present time. Okay, so the article was entitled Meagre Harvest, Brits Told to Eat Turnips as Supermarkets Ration Fresh Fruit and Vegetables. Horror, horror. <laughs> <laughs> Month-long shortages of fruit and vegetables, um, they were including salad and brassica crops, and this was due to a severe frost in Morocco and Spain in November and December. And this is because Britain traditionally relies on imports of these of many of these crops, lettuces, like 90% of lettuces and 95% of tomatoes during winter. Um, and the supermarkets therefore ended up by the, the shelves were empty. So just like with us in, during the COVID period, they were limiting purchases of, and it's really interesting what the crops were, peppers, cucumbers, tomatoes, lettuce, salad bags, broccoli, cauliflower and raspberries. Now, of all of those crops, they, if they were going to be grown in Britain they'd ha in this time of the year, they'd have to be grown you know, in, in a greenhouse, um, maybe with the exception of the brassicas. That's the um, broccoli and cauliflower possibly could be grown in the field in Britain, but I'm not sure. Anyway, the Environment Secretary, of course, of the Conservative government, Therese Coffey, suggested that British families eat homegrown seasonal foods such as turnips. I don't think that was such a politically wise move on <laughs> to say this. But, but nevertheless, it's a very interesting comment. Um, so, so what, what we can, what, so I'll, I'll, this is the first of three, three little vignettes from this article which I'll talk about. So one of the things we can say about this is that um, these foods are all out of season in the UK. Like you might be able to grow some of them in, in, in spring and summer in the UK, but not in, at this time, the, you know, like towards the, the middle and end of winter. And, and the other thing about them is they're imported from places where labour is cheaper than in Britain and where the climate is generally warmer. Now, environmentally, this is a problem because importing all this food and, and storing it in, in refrigerated containers and so on uses quite a lot of fossil fuel energy. First of all, there's the oil and diesel used in transporting it, either in planes or, or boats and trucks and whatever. And then there's the coal-fired power stations, which are, which are freezing it, you know, etc. Now, clearly, none of this it would be at all possible in an environment based upon renewables. That, 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 is, that is my feeling about it. I don't think we can get renewables to replace anything like the kind of energy services we're now getting from fossil fuels. And, and so what, what we would inevitably see in Britain is, is some sort of curtailment of, of certain of these food options that the British now enjoy, you could say, or don't enjoy or whatever. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the, the, next, the, the next thought that occurred to me was that these unseasonable frosts in Morocco and Spain that they talk about could well be the result of climate change. One of the things that's happening with climate change is the, 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 the blockage of the, the Gulf Stream, which is warms up um, the, the North Atlantic Ocean and so on, and that could be having this effect. And certainly what we're going to see is increasing effects on food production from climate change, and especially in the global south where a lot of the foods that are eaten in the rich countries are grown, we're going to see huge effects of desertification and so on. And I, I, I note for, that Brexit is not really the issue in so far as these crops are concerned because clearly, despite Brexit, they're still being imported into Britain. Um, all right, so we're concluding this little section, I'd say this. A sustainable food economy in Britain would have to grow fruit, vegetables and protein, at the very least in Britain for local consumption. 
and, and so it would be moved about on by electric powered trains with renewable energy, wind power, whatever, solar, etc. So, or it might be ca carted about in donkey carts and, and bullock drays, or people might live closer to where the food's being grown. The, the only thing, given that Britain is overpopulated, the only thing that, that would make it would be environmentally feasible to bring in would probably be cereal crops on sailing ships, like they used to have in the 19th century. We used to supply a lot of that. Um, so population could be reduced or the British could emigrate to where the food is grown, like Australia. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> they... They would use um, systems of preservation, you know, like uh, sauerkraut is a, is a traditional European crop, which is basically pickled cabbage and so on. Um, they would use polytunnels, probably without heating and so on, and winter-friendly crops such as the brassicas and so on. So that's my first lot of comments in the first point. Okay, the second comment. They then quoted, um, what's her name? Therese Coffey, the environment minister, who said, she went, oh dear, maybe that was a bit strong. So then she said, I'm conscious that consumers want a year-round choice and that is what our supermarkets, go Britain, food producers and growers around the world try to satisfy. So I, I, th I thought this is a fascinating little comment on, on consumerism and how, and how, it, how it operates to, to drive the, the market economy. So... The market economy uses price signals to determine production and distribution. In other words, if you can sell a capsicum in Britain at this time of the year and people are prepared to buy it and it makes a, a sense in terms of profit making, then that's what the, the owners of the means of production, the capitalist class, will be doing. Whatever is most profitable will be market, marketed. Other issues that you might want to take into account, like workers' satisfaction, like the fact that the people who, who are growing these capsicums in Morocco are massively exploited and, and overworked and sunburned and God knows what, that's not a, a relevant factor unless you have to pay for it. And environmental problems are clearly not important in, 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 this, in this case, like the ones that I've just been talking about. These are not part of the monetary equation. So support for capitalism in the rich countries is premised on consumer choice. The, the people throughout the 19th and 20th centuries in, in the rich countries have achieved a deal with capitalism. The deal is that they will not challenge the capitalist order as such. They will not demand control of the means of production or ownership of the means of production. What they will expect is a continuing and increasing supply of consumer goods and individualised choice and leisure options. So alienated labour is the basic uh, way in which work is uh, carried out within, within capitalist economies. That's not to be challenged. The environmental crisis brings this deal into question. And what we're seeing now in Britain is a sort of little snippet foretaste of, of, of the problems that are likely. It becomes impossible to maintain... Uh, th this deal that, that I've talked about. In the rich countries, the rich and the upper middle class will continue with lifestyles that have become too expensive for the mainstream. So within the context of the market economy, if we don't do anything to overthrow the market economy, what we'll see is that the rich will continue to be able to buy things that the environmental crisis renders too expensive for the mass of the population. 
in, in terms politically, this is, this is not very, very good because it means that relative deprivation, the sense of the, ri the rich, you know, getting, getting away with it while we're, we're not, we're not we're, uh, it becomes intensified. And, and clearly we can see how that can be used by the far right to, to leverage sort of campaigns to unsettle things. And as other examples, obviously capitalism is a good example, but also private cars, home ownership in Australia in particular. So in this case, it's expensive specialty food options. So we're likely to see a migration up, upwards of the, of the fraction of the population that can do that. So um, I've got here the mantra, you have earned it, you know, like in that ad that says that operates to drive consumer choices for products that are environmentally or socially problematic. Imported foods, foods out of season, foods produced on land stolen from peasant farmers, foods produced by underpaid farm workers in the global south, foods produced with pesticides and herbicides that are toxic to wildlife, luxury for the foods for the foods for the north produced on land that used to sustain wild species, for example, palm oil and orangutans, tea and elephants cacao, chocolate and jaguars. These choices are unintended. The, they fit a context in which products are lined up as commodities detached from their history. So when, when someone of the mainstream normal person in Australia goes into the supermarket, they never think, I'm buying a tea, tea now that was with, that's grown on land that used to be used by elephants. That's the last thing that occurs to them. Um, in other words, these problems are not likely to go away without system change, and especially an end to the market economy and alienated labour. A moral campaign to reform food choice is most li likely to impact a minority of the middle class with high cultural capital. People like us, in other words. So that, so that there is a certain section of the population that will, will respond to this situation by going, I will only buy sustainable products, I will only buy organic and so on. But you can see in the context of alienated labour, it's very unlikely that this will become a mainstream option efficient to prevent the kind of environmental damage which is so widespread. Right, the third quote. The National Farmers Union Minute Batters has warned that Cuts to post-Brexit farm subsidies combined with steep rises in the price of raw materials, labour and energy has led to production falls. There's almost a billion fewer eggs produced in 2022 than in 2019, which is surely relevant to the health of, of, of many British families. Supplies of salad vegetables grown in UK greenhouses were falling because of high energy prices, which were making it uneconomic for some growers to operate. The availability of produce is expected to be down by 30% and 40% on some crops, with the pepper harvest down 70%. So this is within Britain. In other words, confirms what I was saying before, that some of these crops are being grown in, in, in energy-intensive greenhouse production in Britain as it is. Wholesale prices have shot up to three times normal levels in some cases, adding to inflation in stores and leading... We're seeing huge contractions, the lowest levels of production since 1985. All right, so notice how this situation works exactly like all the environmental problems in the context of a capitalist market economy. The price of consumer goods goes up, in this case by three times. One result is that ordinary people cannot buy the things they used to be able to buy. Another outcome is unemployment. You know, like in, in, the, in, the, in the, pe the people who were working in these greenhouses before and they now haven't got a job, and bankruptcy for the businesses supplying the commodity. 
The final result is that the rich end up by being the only ones able to continue to purchase what was previously a simple working class pleasure, a capsicum in winter. <laughs> a sense of relative deprivation and anger must be, uh, and people, what people say is it must be the fault of some kind of elite stuff up. You know, like the, the, the problem is the conservatives, they're idiots. Well, I wouldn't deny that for a minute, but in, in a sense, the problems are much deeper than that. And now I look at some of the things that they talked about that have gone up in price. Energy. Okay, so everyone goes, oh, it's a war in Ukraine, it's a war in Ukraine. The, um, the, the, Europe has cut off supplies of gas from Russia. That's what's driving up energy prices. That's true to an, up to a point, but it's also because of oil peak, what, what used to be called oil peak. In other words, we've, got, we've reached a stage where the demand for fo fossil fuels like oil and gas is starting to outstrip the supply and the prices are going up. So, so it's not easy to replace the gas that used to come from Russia with other cheap supplies from other parts of the world causing these kind of problems. So this is not a temporary problem. What we're seeing is the first step in, a, in, in what David Holmgren, notorious um, permaculture writer, has described as energy descent. The same income will buy you less because the cost of energy goes up, the cost of other things that, are that, that use energy uh, also goes up. Raw materials. An effect of growth is that we're running out of raw materials of various kinds and they're costing more. The increasing cost of energy also drives an increasing cost for raw materials. Labour. The price of farm labour has escalated in Britain following Brexit. The, so the British used to import casual labour paid at the very low wages from Eastern Europe, Turkey, etc. Now, if we look at Brexit as a political phenomenon, it was driven by the resentment at the effects of neoliberal globalisation. Unemployment in manufacturing and coal mining and things like that Casualisation of workforce meaning that no one's secure in their jobs anymore, stagnant wages, and what happened was that they scapegoated foreign workers. This, this campaign was driven by the, the far right, probably also by the Russians who wanted just to unsettle everything in Europe. Um, and, and it was very successful and it was massively sophisticated campaign using various um, so social marketing tools. So the negative side effects of Brexit in relation to the price of food are a typical dilemma of the present situation. The standard of living in consumer goods in the rich countries is premised on cheap labour from the poor countries. Isolation of your economy to restore working class jobs and conditions is a tactic promoted by the far right to unsettle things and to express their racism. But governments embrace this solution at their peril because the price of consumer goods will go up if they do that. From the perspective environmental, of environmentalists like us, this is a no-win dilemma in the context of market economies in the rich countries. Environmentally speaking, there's no way to maintain a global economy premised on fossil fuel energy, transporting and storing foods and other products. We have to localise the economy to have an energy regime compatible with the absence of fossil fuels. As well, from the point of view of social justice, the global south have exploited. We need to get out of their backyards and let them produce things for their own, for their own use, not for us. However, politically, we're in the same position as the mainstream parties. To advocate localisation in the rich countries is to advocate an increase in the price of consumer goods, including food. This impacts most severely on the middle and working class parts of the community while the, the rich get off scot-free. Okay, so do I have any solutions to this tragic situation? <laughs> <laughs> the strategic solution is twofold. One, 
One part is to acknowledge these realities. That's what, what I particularly like about the degrowth movement, where unlike the rest of the environmentalist movement, the degrowth movement is at least honest enough to say to people, there is no such thing as a free lunch where the environment and social justice are concerned. I, I really like that and I actually think politically it's advisable. I think the environment movement is making a huge mistake thinking people are mug enough to believe that, that, you know, that we, can, we can live just like we do now and better you know, with renewable energy. What a load of rubbish. And people don't believe it. I mean, I've interviewed lots of ordinary people and I can tell you they just do not believe it. Um, the, other the other part of the tactic is to change the system and to advocate that. We need a situation where people's enjoyment and creativity is expressed not through their consumer choices, you know, the capsicum on Wednesday night and so on. It's expressed through their, for their daily work, creating things together that they think are useful and interesting and giving them to people who, who they think need them and so on. Having, having a local community which supports them and encourages them to do useful work. And the other thing I'd be, I'll say is I'll just refer back to what Anitra says and one of my ideas that I've explored in some of my writing is the idea of hybrid economies of the gift economy and capitalism. I think a lot of the tactics that we're using now can be seen as prefigurative strategies uh, that embody some aspects of, the, uh, of, a, of a future economy that we might like to see and some aspects of the capitalist economy. Uh, I'll just give one example, but which makes it really obvious. A community-supported agricultural cooperative farm where people get together in the cooperative to decide what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. But what you'd say, what's the capitalist side of this is they're marketing uh, to a group of consumers who, who have the option of buying from Woolies if they want to, etc., etc. You have to you know, make your enterprise work in that, in that framework. So these, these, these hybrids have, have their limitations and they can go totally pear-shaped. But on the other hand, that's, that's something that we're, 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 we're committed to doing. It's, it's, it seems like the only way forward in many cases. Thank you, Terry. That was wonderful. Now, please don't forget to check out the two earlier episodes where you'll hear Colin Long and Anitra Nelson. We've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet, is fighting a great battle. Yes, as I said, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with your friends. In fact, I urge you to share it with your friends, as we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis. Despite what those behind the greenwashing campaign say, this is really an existential threat, so we need to know all we possibly can to combat it in any sort of efficient way. So again, please take care.